0: Well, good, morning. good morning, famous uh, Russian author, Valentin Pikul, I don't know if he's really famous or not, because I didn't recognize the name, maybe you do, but I hear he's famous. He once described fighting against Russia as a fight that Russia may lose, but that you cannot win, a fight that Russia may lose, but that you can't win. And as any student of history will tell you, this has pretty much been the case. At the turn of the 19th century, early in the 1800s, France was the strongest power in all of Europe. And they were led by one of the great generals in all of history, a guy by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte. And this brilliant General Napoleon made a not-so-brilliant move in the summer of 1812 when he invaded Russia. And as the French troops went deeper and deeper into Russia, Russia just kept pulling further and further back. And the French arrived in Moscow thinking this was going to be the spot of the definitive victory that would end the campaign. But what they found in Moscow blew them away. It was a ghost town. They had left. They had burned the farms, burned the food. But Napoleon decided to set up shop there in Moscow, knowing that Tsar Nicholas I would soon come... With terms of surrender. But the Tsar never came. What came instead was a brutal Russian winter. Where temperatures went to 40 degrees below zero. And finally, Napoleon realized this and orders a retreat from Moscow. And by the time his famous army reaches the border and enters into France, many historians claim that less than 50,000... Of their 600,000 that he took, 600,000 soldiers remained. Napoleon was removed, ultimately removed from power, exiled, had a failed attempt at suicide, and died alone in exile on the island of St. Helena. Not to be outdone, 129 years later, another dictator with an insatiable Appetite for power decides that it will be a good idea to invade Russia, what now is the, at this point in time, the Soviet Union. And this time he's not from France, he's from the neighboring country of Germany. And he's not bringing 600,000 soldiers, he's lining up 4 million on the border. And yet the result is the same early victories followed by a brutal retreat ultimately leading to a colossal defeat. And Nazi Germany suffers almost 80% of their casualties in the entire World War II on the Eastern Front, fighting the Soviets. And on April 30th, 1945, with the Soviet Red Army, the one that he had invaded, with them now surrounding him at his home in Berlin, in the bunker, in a bunker in Berlin, Hitler takes his own life. Two of the most powerful men in the history of the world who suffered similar fates because of a similar mistake as they fought a fight that they could not win. And while Russia is large and cold and a brutal opponent in warfare, there is a far stronger opponent that no one will ever defeat. And that is our God, a fight against God is a fight that you can't win. And while there may look to be advances at points in time, initial victories, the end result has been determined. The end result is that God will be victorious and that those who oppose him will be destroyed. And like Hitler, who once ruled over half of Europe, but ended up in a bunker committing suicide. Those who oppose God, no matter how successful they might become in the eyes of the world, will one day find themselves in a bunker, a bunker of shame, surrounded by the one whom they attacked, where they will walk the path of judgment that they themselves paved. Now, how's that for a warm, fuzzy sermon opening right there? I want to invite you to open your Bibles. You may be having trepidations doing so now, but I want, to op- I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12. As we continue our journey in the book of Acts, and today we get to see how God is going to graciously, and I mean that, graciously give us a glimpse of the utter futility and the absolute folly of fighting Him, which is the definition of a fight that you can't win. And so as you, as you turn to chapter 12, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to break it down kind of into four sections, four phases. And it's going to keep our military theme going. The first phase is going to be the invasion. And this is the invasion of Herod against the early church. Phase two is going to be the response. The response of the early church. The response of God. Phase three is going to be the retreat. The retreat retreat. By Herod, And phase four will be the judgment, the judgment of God towards Herod. So part one is the invasion, this invasion against the early church. And this is what we find at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now about that time, and about that time is about 44 AD, just so you can kind of get that in your mind. It's about 44 AD. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church In order to mistreat them. Now, who is Herod the king? There are a lot of Herods in the New Testament, and it can get pretty confusing. So, I thought I'd put a chart up there that nobody can read (laughs) to make it more confusing, because it's a big family. Okay, and then I put another chart. There we go. That's going to kind of focus in on the guy we're going to talk about this morning. So, Herod the Great was the ruler over kind of what we know as Israel when Jesus was born. He ruled for about 40 years. And Herod the Great has many sons. But the name The Great does not come from how he was as a father. Okay? Super paranoid guy. And so he had many sons, and he would kill some of them if he felt they were trying to usurp his power. And so one of the sons he has is a guy named Aristobulus. Aristobulus. And this guy right here, his brothers turn father against him, and he has him killed. So he kills his son. Like I said, he's a great dude. So he kills his son. But now before, Aristobulus has a son named Herod Agrippa I, which is who we're reading about in chapter 12, verse 1. This is Herod Agrippa I. So what happens is Herod Agrippa's father dies, and he leaves, and he goes to Rome. And this is where he's going to grow up. And he's going to grow up with the blue bloods of Rome. He's going to hobnob with the Roman elites. And what's crazy is that two of the guys he grows up with, two of his childhood friends, lo and behold, become the emperors of Rome. Caligula is one, and then Claudius is the next one. And so Caligula grants him rule. ...over certain areas, and then in A.D. 41, Claudius comes along, gives him the title of king, and then also gives him the areas of Judea and Samaria, which were the areas where the church was really growing and thriving... Okay, And so this poses a unique challenge. Herod the king, Herod Agrippa I, is now ruling over Judea and Samaria. And what we know from history, both in the Bible and in extra-biblical sources outside the Bible, is that Herod Agrippa was very pro-Jewish. He wanted to do whatever possible to appease the Jews in his area. And around this same time, the church is also starting to thrive there, and thus Jewish opposition is growing. This is about 10 years or so from the resurrection. And the Jewish opposition to these Christians, this thing called the church, is certainly rising. Especially after the events of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 that we've talked about, where now there's Gentiles being included with spiritual equality to that of the Jews. And so this is heightening. Heightening the persecution and the anger the Jews have towards these believers. And so Herod Agrippa comes along and the stars have seemingly aligned against the early church. Herod is in control of the region. Jewish opposition is growing. Herod is very pro-Jew, willing to do whatever it takes to make him happy. So Herod begins to persecute the church for political purposes and he goes after the apostles. He's going to start catching some big fish. And we see that in verse 2 as this persecution leads to the execution of one of the apostles. Verse 2 says, And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So James is killed by Herod to appease the Jews. And you know what happens is that the Jews like it. And so they want more of it. And Herod sees that the Jews like it. So he likes it. So he's now going to up the ante. And he's going after the biggest fish of all. He's going to go after Peter. We see that in verse 3. It says, "...when he saw that that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people." So, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So, Herod gets Peter. He arrests Peter, and he is sending Peter to the same fate to that of James. He's sentenced to death. But his timing's a little off. It's during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's during Passover. And it was not proper to have an execution during the Passover. And so he puts him in a holding tank. He puts him on death row. And he says, when this is done, you're gone. When, when this feast ends, Peter will be killed. And so things are not looking good. They're not looking good for Peter. They're not looking good for the disciples. It's not looking good for the early church. This is the initial invasion that brought about initial victories or seeming victories by Herod against the church. But that brings us to part two, which is the response. And we see this beginning at the second half of verse five. It says, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So when the church had their backs against the wall, put yourself in their shoes. James, this is the first apostle to be killed. James martyred. Peter, their number one guy, their leader on death row. Herod is bringing down pain on these people, and he's in control. And so when all that happens, what they do is they gather together and they pray. The only weapon they had to fight against the tyranny was prayer. And in the process, they realized that prisons were no match for prayers. And as Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, once said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And so the church gathered together and prayed that God would save Peter. Prayed that God would respond. And respond he did. And we see this in verse 6. It says, On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. So Peter doesn't seem too stressed about this whole thing. Okay? He's on death row, man. He is about to die the next day. And what's he doing? <laughs> he's passed out, man. And most of the time, they would only have they, the, the the prisoners would have one wrist chained to another prison guard. But he's got both. He's got both arms chained, and they've got two more guards outside the gate. I mean, this is a a serious prisoner. And Peter's just like, it's all good. It's going to be. It's gonna, things are going to be just fine. And, and, and verse 7 says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So the angel comes in, breaks him out, says, Hey, let's go. Let's go. And the Greek here is kind of interesting. It's an aorist middle imperative followed by a present active imperative. And y'all say, Very cool. (laughs) Very cool. All that to say the angel is in a hurry. The angel's like, Peter, let's go now. Let's move. The angel's not going, Isn't it a beautiful sunrise? Or these stars are amazing in this No, it's let's go. We gotta get. And so they break out, and Peter's kind of sleepwalking. He doesn't really know what's going on. And we see this in verse 9. It says, he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And then when Peter came to himself... He said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So finally, when the angel departs, that's when Peter realizes, okay, this is not a dream. This is not a vision. This is a miracle from the hand of God. And then verse 12 says, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. So once Peter escapes, he knows exactly where to go. He knows exactly where to go. He's going to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. This is the same John Mark who will eventually write the Gospel of Mark, which many scholars call the Peter's Gospel. Because the church father Papias wrote down and said that Peter told Mark all that he knew. And that's what Mark put down in his gospel. So this is a good friend of his. This John Mark is a good friend and associate to Peter. And as we read this event, do not miss the importance of community between Peter and in the early church. They are gathered together praying for Peter. And when Peter escapes, guys, he knows, boom, I'm going to Mary's. I'm going to see the game. He's going to his small group, his network. He's going to his ABF. He's going to his church family. That's where he's going. And as you look around here at Wayside, it's pretty obvious we are a large church. This is a big place. There's a lot of people in here. And that's not bad. Now, that Praise God that we have a large church. But that does pose some problems, and it does pose some challenges for us. And one of the greatest problems it poses is that it is easy to be invisible. It is easy to be invisible. It is easy to go unnoticed and be unknown. And while that may be easy, it is not good. Because the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It was never meant to be lived in isolation. The Christian life is not an individual sport. It is a team sport meant to be lived out in community with one another. This was true of the church then, and it's true of the church now. Everyone matters. Everyone has something to offer. And everyone needs one another. We need each other. And that need is by God's design. That's how he's designed the church. Peter was a part of a community of believers. He's part of a local church. And when God granted him a miraculous escape, he knows where to go. Right to his church community. Right to his church family where they have gathered and are praying for him. They are praying for him. Praying for a miracle. And yet despite their prayers, when Peter shows up, they are in total disbelief to what is going on. They are completely befuddled. Starting in verse 13. It says, When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. This is one of the great scenes in the entire Bible. Total miracle. Total miracle. Peter's out. Just what they've been praying for. He goes there. Guys, it's Peter. Maybe not like that. Okay, but hey, Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. And Rhoda goes to answer the door, and she hears Peter's voice, and she goes, Oh my gosh! It's Peter! Guys! Guys! Peter's here! And Peter's like, Hey! They're going to kill me! Open the door! She's there. I mean, so she goes in. It's verse 15. She tells them, Hey, Peter's at the door. And it says, They said to her, Nah, you're out of your mind. You're crazy, Rhoda. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. As one commentator put it, they found it easier to believe that Peter had been killed and that his angel had come back and was knocking at their door rather than that God had miraculously freed Peter. So they were praying for a miracle, but clearly in some ways not expecting it. And in some ways that's a comfort because even the first century church Struggled with doubt. Even the first century church is wrestling with will God come through. And he does. But Peter still outside. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. So finally, they open up the door. They see it's Peter in the flesh. They go crazy. It's New Year's Eve, Times Square, ball drops. That's what it's like in the house. And they're just, they're just exuberant. And Peter's like, guys, guys, guys. Kind of does the quarterback thing with the stadium. Hey, quiet down. Quiet down. I need to say something. And he goes, and he tells them what happened. And he says, go tell that to James and the brethren, which is fascinating, right? And the James he's speaking of here is not the James brother of John. He's, he's been killed. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. The one who had opposed Jesus in his earthly ministry, but after the resurrection had come to faith in his half-brother as the risen Lord. And James would go on to take Peter's place as basically the senior pastor in Jerusalem where he was faithful for two decades before he was martyred. And he wrote the book of James along the way. And so Peter reports what's going on, and then he leaves, most likely to escape being captured. And then there's these fascinating words. It says, he left and went to another place. And interestingly, with this exit, Peter pretty much exits from the book of Acts. He's pretty much gone. We'll see him a little bit again in chapter 15, but for the most part, Peter disappears from the rest of the book. And when you think about the book of Acts, it is a book about how Christ established his church on earth. And Christ established his church on earth primarily through the ministry of two individuals. There were two leaders. And the first one is the apostle Peter. And the second one is the apostle Paul. And chapters 1 through 12 of the book of Acts are chapters where Peter is the key guy. Peter's the guy being used as the church spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria. But chapters 13 through 28, those pages are going to be dominated by the ministry of Paul as the church goes out beyond the borders of Israel. And this is interesting because Peter was used greatly by God, but then God says, I'm going to choose someone else to carry on the mission. I'm going to choose a Jewish terrorist who's into killing Christians. That's who's going to take this church onward. It's an interesting ministry handoff, is it not? It's an interesting uh, ministry handoff. And yet that is our God. Our God is supremely wonderful and at times supremely unpredictable. Unpredictable. And He loves to flourish things and bless things and bless people. When we don't expect, in a way we don't expect, often with whom we wouldn't expect. And I I experienced this when I left O'Connor and came to Wayside. When I left coaching and teaching at O'Connor High School and came to Wayside in the summer of 2012, there were many things I missed about my career and my life as a teacher and coach. And one of the things I missed the most was my ministry as the FCA director. I had been the FCA director at O'Connor for six years. Years where I'd led numerous Bible studies in the morning and at nights and really poured into some guys there. And through the years, we would typically average about 20 or 25 people for our Bible studies. Now, when I left, none of the other coaches wanted to take the mantle of being the FCA lead. And so, unfortunately, I thought it's probably going to be student-run. It'll probably crater without me. (laughs) I know. Ultimately, an English teacher named Lisa House... And a retired golf coach named Colonel Johnston decide to give the group some oversight moving forward the next year. And that next year, they invite me back to come speak to O'Connor FCA. And so I arrive at the house that night, and I walk in, and I cannot believe what I see. There's 80 people in there. 80 students in the house. Football players, baseball players, basketball players. Soccer players, males, females. Should have recruited more females. The males would have come. Ministry lesson. But I walk in and it's, it's crazy. And I remember leaving that meeting and getting in my car and driving home. And there were kind of two thoughts just circulating in my head. And the first one was praise God. I mean, seriously, praise God that this is a public high school and I go into this house and there's 80 students there and I get to preach the gospel to them and share from God's word. And then the second thought that came into my mind was, man, you are not that important. <laughs> just not as important as you thought. I mean, you are actually, Michael, you're pretty replaceable. They're doing just fine without you. And and really the best thing that could happen to that group was me leaving. It is what the group needed. And it reminded me of a truth that we all must realize and embrace at some point in our life. And that is that God is in control, not us. That God is a sovereign God. And he gives blessings when he pleases to whom he pleases. And as you think about the context of our passage, I would imagine that the early church came together and prayed for James the way they prayed for Peter. I would imagine the early church came together and said, Lord, would you free our brother James so that he might come home to his family and continue the work of the ministry? I would imagine James's younger brother, the apostle John, who had grown up looking up to his older brother James. I would imagine John prayed with all his might. And he's the apostle whom Jesus loved. And he said, Lord, would you free my brother? Would you set him free and allow him to live? And yet in God's sovereignty, he allowed James to be martyred and Peter to be freed. And the obvious question is, why? I mean, why? Why, God? And it's a question that all of us ask at some point in time when our loved ones suffer or when we suffer. Why, God? Why is this happening to me and not that crazy evil person? Why is that happening to my family member and nobody else's? Why, God? And the truth is, is that we are often left without any answer as to why. Only God knows. That's the way it is. Only God knows, and we are to trust in Him. And it's a reminder that we cannot guarantee the results or the outcomes of our life on this earth. We cannot guarantee those things. That is outside our jurisdiction, that is outside our abilities, that is outside our power. But what is not outside our power and what is not outside our abilities is our opportunity to be faithful. It's the opportunity to be faithful to God no matter what. I led FCA O'Connor for six years. And it grew by 400% in six months. <laughs> and praise God. Because the blessing belongs to Him. My job was to be faithful to those that, and to what He had given me. Peter was called to be faithful to what God had given to him. Paul was called to be faithful to what God had given to him. Friends, James was called to be faithful to what God had for him. And you and I are called to be faithful to what God has for each one of us. And then we are to trust in him and let him handle the results. For he is good and he is in control. So phase one is, our, is the invasion of Herod against the early church phase 2 is the response by the early church through prayer and ultimately as God frees Peter and this brings us to phase 3 which is the retreat the retreat look at verse 18 it says now when day came there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter yeah no kidding where's Peter? I don't know it's not going to go well for these guys All right. Verse 19, When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So Peter escapes. Herod can't find him. And because of Roman law, the guards suffer the same fate that was to be for the prisoner. So the guards are executed just like Peter was to be executed. Okay? And once again, we see an instance where those who looked like they had all the power, those who looked like they were in total control, in reality didn't have any at all. They were but clay in the hands of the potter. They were fighting a fight that they could not win. And so Herod orders the execution and he leaves Judea, the area around uh, Jerusalem, And he heads to Caesarea about 60 miles away. And though he can escape from the embarrassment of Judea and from Judea, he cannot escape from the judgment of God. For he invaded, the church responded, Herod retreated, and judgment is now coming. Starting in verse 20. It says, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, a little stage, and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give the glory. Give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he died. So Herod is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is actually outside of his jurisdiction, but they were dependent upon him for food and for trade. Kind of like if our economy goes down, it impacts a lot of other economies. So they needed Herod. And so they try to win him over. They win over one of his closest servants, his chamberlain, and they gathered together for a two day festival. And the first day is dedicated to Caesar. But the second day, well, that's all Herod. And so Herod comes out in all his splendor, in his divine, what he sees is divine clothing. And this is one of those great places in Scripture where someone outside of Scripture corroborates the story of Scripture. In this case, the Jewish historian Josephus writes extensively about this event. You can go read about it. And this is what Josephus tells us. He says that Herod appeared in the outdoor theater at Caesarea, and he stood before the officials of Tyre and Sidon and his other provinces. He was wearing a a robe, a silver robe, and when the sun hit it, it shined. It sparkled. And people in the crowd said, He is not a man. He is a God. And Josephus tells us Herod neither confirmed nor denied it. Neither confirmed nor denied it. And Josephus says, immediately, severe stomach pains attacked him. And Josephus goes into great detail, and it's gory, about how he is carried out by attendants out of the theater. And that five days later, he dies in excruciating pain with an unimaginable stench coming from him. And as Dr. Luke tells us from a medical perspective, as his abdomen is full of worms. The high and mighty Herod, who refused to bow to God in worship, was ultimately brought to his knees by worms. And friends, that is rough. I mean, that is graphic. And that is not a pretty picture. But that is the destiny for those who oppose God. Those who refuse to bow and worship God will one day be brought to their knees in judgment by God. And when you look to the cross, the cross not only reminds us that it's there where Jesus died for our sins, but the cross also reminds us that Jesus is coming back. But he's not coming as the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah. He's coming as the conquering king of the book of Revelation. And he's not coming to hang on a cross where he takes upon our judgment, but he's coming to earth to execute his judgment as he judges the living And the dead. And when that happens, friends, there will be no middle ground. We are either with him or against him. And that's just the reality. That's the picture that Scripture paints. And look, I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know this if you are fighting God, you are fighting a fight that you cannot and will not win. And this is not just for those who maybe have not come to that place of faith. And Jesus Christ is Lord. There are believers here this morning who are fighting against God in their life. Are you fighting against God in marriage, your marriage, or lack thereof? Are you fighting against God when it comes to your kids? Are you fighting against God in your finances, in your relationships? Are you fighting against God by harboring a spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone? Unwilling to let go of, unwilling to allow God to come in and bring peace and comfort. Fighting against God is a fight that you cannot win, but fortunately is also a fight that you don't have to engage in. In the wonderful book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes these words. He says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't lay down our weapons. Christ came while we had them up ready to attack. As Bruce so aptly put it when he gave his gospel presentation up there, Christ came on our behalf independent of anything we had done. Verse 9 much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The judgment of God is real, but so is his mercy, and so is his grace. And our vessel of grace is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died in our place on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 10 says that, For if if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. He has reconciled us to himself through his blood. Christ Jesus brought peace where there was war. And in doing so, he revealed that God is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of grace. God is a God of holiness, and he is also a God of love. God is a God of justice, and he is also a God of of forgiveness and we cannot remove any of these attributes of god we must hold them in tension because when we remove any of these we fail to describe god as he himself has revealed himself to be and we do not worship him accurately in spirit or in truth he is perfect in all of his ways and he is worthy to be praised And in closing, this is exactly what happens when Herod is gone. The church praises him and continues to flourish. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. It's growing. Herod couldn't get in the way of the church. The Roman Empire couldn't get in the way of the church. The church keeps moving. The church keeps going. It's God's promise to us. In verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And so as Barnabas and Paul return with Mark, this also serves as the turning point of the book of Acts. We've looked at 12 chapters now, which focuses on a Peter-led ministry in Judea and Samaria. But the gospel doesn't stop there. And chapters 13 through 28, which will begin next week, It's going to be a Paul-led focus as he takes the gospel beyond the borders throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Exciting stuff. Fighting God is a fight you can't win, so don't do it. Rather, repent, humble yourself, and worship the God in whom and with whom you cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we confess a number of things. One, we confess that we are sinners, that we fall short and that we need the gospel each and every day of our life. We never reach a place where we have outgrown the gospel. We never reach a place where we no longer need refining or conviction or your spirit to continue to transform us. We are works in progress and we confess that to you. But we know that it's by your grace, God, that that as we were sinners far from you, you came near you put on flesh in the incarnation and you came to earth and dwelt among us, that you lived a perfect life and you willingly went to the cross where you died for our sins and you rose from the grave and your offer is good today that if anyone should believe, they may have eternal life. God, I pray if there's anybody out here this morning who has not taken that step of faith, anybody who's out here has not received that free gift of salvation that comes by grace alone, by faith alone and Christ alone, God, that they would receive that gift. And God, I pray for those of us here this morning who do know you as Lord, but are fighting you. Fighting you in in various areas of our life, unwilling to let go. We're constantly saying, it's my will that needs to be done, not thy will. God, would you help us repent of that attitude? Would you help us humble ourselves before you and live a life that is led by you and that is pleasing to you? God, we thank you for the cross. And while judgment is difficult, God, nobody likes talking about judgment, it does reveal your holiness and your justice and that you are a God who is true and just and holy and will not tolerate sin. And yet the cross reveals your love for us as you paid our debt and as you rose from the grave on our behalf. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. May we be a church that lives a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we have prayer partners up here. They would love to pray with you. I'll be up here up front. I'd love to meet with you. The rest of y'all have a wonderful Sunday morning. I hear it may be sprinkling at some point. Don't worry. Hail won't do any damage. Don't worry. And we'll see you back next Sunday. Have a great day.